podcasting from sea to shining sea, here are the hosts of PR Nation, Robert Johnson and Summer Johnson, partners at Reister Public Affairs in Washington, D.C. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, PR Nation. Down to the final days before the election. Ooh-wee, it's getting hot in here. Did you just quote Nellie? Hmm, maybe. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't do that. Why? That's my music. Uh, well, you can have it. I prefer Hotel California, Sir Duke, Baby I Love Your Way, Frampton, that kind of stuff. Sarah, I need a little bit of backup here, you know. Please help me. Help me out here. I have to say, too, Robert, I don't know if our music tastes align that much either. What? <laughs> what is your, your music own. taste, Miss Hissy Fit? <laughs> I do. <laughs> I believe I'm wearing a Metallica shirt today, mm. so I can bring in some of the heavy rock for a little bit. Mm. Okay. Well, that's when dudes sounded like <laughs> women and their hair was twice and as baby, long. And Baby, I Love Your Way is not dude sounding Peter like Frampton women? Frampton totally on. looks like a that's girl. That's like dentist office music. <laughs> no. But I like it. <laughs> Ooh, baby, I love your way every day. That's as high as I can go. So, Tim, I am certain you're into rap. Yes? Oh, yeah. That's probably my top, like, two or three genres that I listen to. Though I find myself kind of staying with, like, stuff before, like, 2017 or 2018. I don't really listen to the modern stuff as much. Oldies. So you're <laughs> saying that, music. <laughs> you're saying that the 2015s is... The old stuff. What about the 80s and 90s hip hop, which, in my opinion, is the best genre of music? I would have to concur with you, I think. What? Nice. Sarah, why didn't you vote with me? I knew we got this. This is horrible. I am so sorry. (laughs) I'm very disappointed. (laughs) I think the consensus is that we're all into older music. I think we need one more person on this podcast team that likes country, and then we'd be super rounded Ooh. out. Nah. No, that's fine. That. <laughs> we don't need that. Who is that person? I don't know who that person is. to look for him. I don't know where to find that. Not me. There's a law against job applications asking about such things, like music preference, <laughs> music I'm preferences. sure. Yes. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. You like country music. You're not You're on. out. Okay. In other news, you know, it's Halloween Eve today, and so I thought it would be a good time to take the audience on a little trip to a place where souls get lost in time, never to be seen again. There is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to normal people. It is a dimension as tacky as sock ties, yet as timeless as jorts, or so we're told. It is the middle ground between socially acceptable and socially distanced, between dress-up and make-believe, and it lies between Easton, PA, and the summit of Washington, D.C. This is the dimension where reenactors dream of a simpler life, with hard bread three times a day and hot, smelly, woolen clothes in the dead of summer. It is an area we call the Gettysburg Zone. <laughs> I think Sarah's crying. Oh my God, I have, I have tears in I'm my glad eyes. you appreciated that. You are crying, Sarah. <laughs> he wrote all of that for oh you. Oh my God. Oh my God. I didn't know that was coming. That's so funny. Oh my gosh. 
<laughs> it's so true, though. <laughs> oh, my God. Who are we talking about here? Jorts made it in there. Yeah. Yes, that is that is Seth, my boyfriend, a hundred percent. Oh my gosh. <laughs> She's still crying. <laughs> it's hilarious. But it's true. Gettysburg is like, as you have said, the weird Bermuda Triangle area of the Northeast. It's a strange place. But I love it. So. <laughs> Any trips planned there? For the next few weeks, any oh, any upcoming trips? No, to Gettysburg? not anytime soon. Unfortunately, no, we went twice this bad. year, so I think we got it out of our system. You already hit your quota. We did, yes, <laughs> for like twenty. <laughs> I will Seems say, a little low for you. <laughs> it is a fantastic place to go in October. They have a million different ghost tours. It's very spooky. Mm. It's a good time. Today's show's a good one. Sarah, what's the plan for today? Scary is more like it. Today, we examine a bit of fake news ripped from the pages of history. Let's just say it involves Martians and New Jersey. So enough said. Our guest wonders if PR people can learn anything from a radio play that aired this night in 1938. Our special Halloween Eve edition of PR Nation gets started right now. I wonder if John O'Dwyer is going to go trick-or-treating this year. If he does, he needs to wear a mask and keep his distance. He'll probably just stay home and manage a candy bowl on the porch for anybody who happens to stop by. Maybe he could play a spooky tune on his piano and leave the windows open so everyone can hear. Ooh, that would be really creepy. You know what's not creepy? What? The latest PR news from John O'Dwyer president and publisher of the O'Dwyer's PR Newsletter. This is your O'Dwyer's PR News Roundup for the week of October 12th. I'm John O'Dwyer. Posted on O'DwyerPR.com this week, Omnicom CEO John Wren reports that third quarter revenues were down 11.5%, to 3.2 billion due to the negative impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. Organic revenues fell 11.7%. Ren said travel, lodging, entertainment, energy, oil and gas, non-essential retail, and automotive sectors took the hardest hit from the virus. Nevada's Silver State Health Exchange has issued an RFP worth $3.2 million per year to handle marketing and outreach efforts. The desired firm will communicate the benefits of accessing health and dental coverage through the Nevada Health Link. Molly Millerwise Miners, who is Chief Communications Officer at the U.S. International Development Finance Corp., has joined Brunswick Group as a partner in its D.C. office. Prior to the DFC, Miners was Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Public Affairs at the Treasury Department. Stanton PR and Marketing represents the syndicate of high-powered life sciences investors that created Avanti Bio, a gene therapy company focused on patients with rare genetic disorders. Bain Capital Life Sciences, Perceptive Advisors, RA Capital Management, and Sarepta Therapeutics put together $107 million in Series A financing to launch Avanti Bio. Finally, A report from risk intelligence provider CRISP 
says that negative comments about brands or companies are surging online, causing untold damage to reputation and putting consumer brand loyalty at risk. The report found that more than two-thirds of those polled reported witnessing a significant rise in their frequency of derogatory, offensive, or hurtful comments. That's your O'Dwyer's PR News Roundup for this week. Log on to O'DwyerPR.com for the latest PR news and commentary. I'm John O'Dwyer. Sign up for O'Dwyer's PR newsletter using the link in the show notes. No matter how you look at it, this Halloween won't be like any other we've had in a long time. People are being urged to stay at home, eat all the candy they bought by themselves, and avoid going door to door. People are afraid of catching the COVID-19 virus. But those in New Jersey and the surrounding area were afraid of something else 82 years ago tonight. They weren't trying to avoid an invisible virus that has been so bad for so many people. No. Instead, they were hiding from Martians who, according to radio news reports, had landed in a tiny hamlet called Grover's Mill near Princeton. Author Gail Jarrow wrote a book two years ago about the invasion that truly was only a radio theater production. It's called Spooked, How a Radio Broadcast and the War of the World Sparked the 1938 Invasion of America. Today, she joins Robert from upstate New York for a Halloween Eve conversation about flame-throwing Martians, a terrified radio audience, and the takeaways for PR pros in 2020. The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. I have a background in science, and I've done a lot of nonfiction research, and I've become very sensitive and aware of false narratives and inaccurate information that just happens if you do nonfiction research. So I wanted to raise the issue of people believing in false facts. And to do that and to appeal to my readers, I searched for a hoax from American history. And there have been several intentional media hoaxes going all the way back into the early 1800s. I settled on the Orson Welles War of the Worlds broadcast because it is famous, but I discovered that many young people do not know about it. And I think it translates very well to today because it deals with media. Radio was brand new then, and people were not savvy about it. And in many ways, even though the internet's been around for a while, I don't think people are as savvy as they probably should be. So it seemed like a good topic. And then when I got doing more research about it, I found that it was a fascinating story. And it was really a story and a story and a story because the original story of The War of the Worlds was a novel by H.G. Wells from 1898. Orson Welles picked it up for his radio program in 1938. After the broadcast, and we're probably going to talk about this more, there was a reaction to the broadcast. And that reaction made its way into the scientific literature, but it made its way in a faulty way. It was bad research. And the conclusions of that research ended up in psychology books, social science books for decades until it was shown to be 
a bad study and the conclusions were inaccurate. So to me, that seemed like a great story that deserved to be told and for young people to read about it. And for people who knew the story before and didn't know how the results and the myth of it have been debunked. And it's a perfect topic for public relations professionals to look into because of all of that. We do messaging. We look for reactions to our messages. We implore our clients and our organizations to tell the truth because bad things happen when you don't. There are just so many reasons why someone in PR ought to take a look at this moment in American history, even though it was a Halloween prank, essentially, for lessons about how to deal with the work that they're doing today, would you say? Absolutely agree. And for people who are on the receiving end of PR, it's also valuable because I'm sure many of the techniques used in advertising and PR to convince people of a message were also used in this radio broadcast. So it kind of goes in both directions. The more things change, the more they stay the same, I guess. Yes. And (laughs) this is something I've learned in all of the books I've been writing. History repeats. And the reason it does, in my opinion, is because people don't really change. Human nature doesn't really change. So people act in a predictable way across history. So you can see these things happening again and again and again. And it helps to know that. It's a good thing to know. Before we get into the weeds, can you bring everyone up to speed on War of the Worlds, what it was, how it came to be? There might be some folks listening who don't know anything about it. The original novel by H.G. Wells was about Martians coming to the London area and annihilating everybody, basically. And he made it very realistic because he used actual places, including the town where he lived. And it was a very, very popular novel. It also ran in a magazine as a serial. And if you look to what has happened to this story since. I mean, we have had movies made of this and television programs, not to mention this radio broadcast we're talking about now. So there's something about that plot, that story that has really appealed to people since 1898. And Orson Welles took advantage of that. He modified the story a little bit, though. The Martian attack was on New Jersey. Yes, part of the idea of adapting this was that instead of having it London, it would be New Jersey, and there were actual places used. I don't know if we're going to talk about more about how the writer did that, but that was part of making it seem very real to people. It was an hour-long broadcast with lots of disclaimers. If you were listening, you knew it wasn't real. Yes, and it was on a program called the Mercury Theater on the Air, and this had been running since the summer of 1938. It was on CBS radio. Orson Welles was the host. It was being produced by Welles and also his partner, who is John Hausman, that people might know from The Paper Chase, for which he won an Academy Award. But he was a writer, a producer, very talented guy. They were doing this series of weekly broadcasts that were one hour long in which they took a novel or a story that was well known and they reduced it to a radio drama that only lasted an hour, which in itself was a real challenge. They had done things like Dracula, 
the Count of Monte Cristo. And this was just another one of the stories they decided to use. And the reason they picked it was because they hadn't done any science fiction and science fiction was becoming popular in general. So they kind of randomly, from what I can tell, settled on the War of the Worlds. There wasn't television in 1938. This is how people got their news, their information, and their entertainment. They were tuned in. Yes, I discovered in my research that 80% of homes in 1938 had a radio, and the average listening time was five hours a day. It was America's favorite entertainment. It was above sports, books, anything else. So people were really into radio, and it was not only the source of entertainment like music, sports, but also news. And Wells kind of played on that piece. When you think of five hours a day listening to the radio in 1938, that in itself is just an unbelievable number because the radios then were half the size of refrigerators. Yeah, yes. My grandmother had one in her attic. They were amazing. And when I heard about that number of hours, I mean, it made me think about television. I mean, it's how people watch TV now, TV and movies and anything online. Well, yeah, unfortunately, I remember the first color TV in our house, and it is a lot bigger than my smartphone, which I can watch TV <laughs> on today. So, Things have changed. If you were listening to War of the Worlds in 1938, you were in your living room. You were not in your car or walking somewhere with your gigantic radio on your back or in a wagon, <laughs> right? No transistor radio plugged into no, your ear. No, right. Yeah, it was a piece of furniture, essentially, is what yes. it was, right? All of this is going on, right? What else is in the mix at the time when Mr. Wells decided to put his play on the radio? What else was happening in the world? How was the stage being set? Well, 1938, for people that really have studied history, know that it was a scary time. It was still in the middle of the Depression, a lot of people out of work or people that were worried about losing their jobs and their homes and their farms. But the big scary thing was that Adolf Hitler was making his move across Europe. And there was a lot of trepidation about where that was going to end up. A month before the radio broadcast, in September of 1938, there was also the huge hurricane. This is a famous hurricane of 1938 that hit the Northeast and killed 700 people. And it was a surprise. They didn't have good weather prediction then. So people were caught unaware. And that's why the death toll was so high. And then going along with that, and this plays into why people believed that Orson Welles's radio broadcast was really happening, was there had been, in 1935, as late as 1935, in the New York Times, an article that said that it was highly likely that there was life on Mars. And there had been a history before that of people, scientists, saying, well, we think there's probably life on Mars and there's this evidence and this evidence. So people were primed. Some people were primed to believe maybe this was true. Maybe the Martians had come to New Jersey. Did Wells and Hausman take advantage of all of that intentionally, or did they just stumble into those circumstances? From the first person reports of this by Wells 
not by well so much. He was not a very good source of information because he liked to make up stories. But Hausman and there were other people involved with the broadcast that I, I believe were trustworthy. The answer to your question is no. They were shocked that anybody would have believed this. They thought they were just doing a fictional story that would be entertaining, that people would know that it was impossible. And of course, Martians weren't coming. They had no intention of fooling anybody. And when people did get upset and panicked about it, they were pretty shocked about that. The story itself is fairly detailed. The play that they performed on the radio has lots of people, lots of locations. It feels like you're listening to the news. And that was one of the ideas. So first of all, let me say that they had to prepare this in less than a week. These programs were on once a week. So Howard Koch, famous for Casablanca later, got an Academy Award for that. He was the writer and he had to produce something in less than a week, a script. And then it had to go through review by Wells and by the CBS censors. And then they had to have two days of rehearsal. So he was working on a very narrow time period to write this. So he came up with a version and then they kind of did a run through and Wells listened to it and thought it was really boring. At that point, they decided, okay, we're going to do these news bulletins and we're going to put in interviews with people who are actors to make it seem more realistic. And that, I think, is what made this story come alive for people and fooled people. It wasn't their intention. They were just trying to make good radio. So Kutch, the story that he tells about picking the locations, he had a map of New Jersey and he just kind of twirled his pencil around it with his eyes closed and put the tip down and looked to see what the town was. And it was Grover's Mill, New Jersey. So that was where he decided to have the Martians land. It happened to be near Princeton, which allowed him to bring in an astronomer who worked at Princeton, who could be interviewed about this strange thing that landed. And again, that added a little more aspect of believability because people later said, well, I heard this scientist talking, so I figured it must be true. The scientist, by the way, was played by Orson Welles. What do you think made this broadcast so powerful, so impactful? There were several reasons. One was it really seemed realistic to people. Part of that had to do with the actors who were very talented. These were all stage actors that worked with Wells and Hausman on their theater, Mercury Theater, which did stage productions in New York City. And they came on and did parts for the radio, but some of them also had worked in radio, as Wells had. So they really knew how to use their voices to tell a story. And I think this is really one of the strengths of Orson Welles. You know, he was only 23 when he did this, but he had a voice that sounded like a much older man, a great voice, and he was very well known in radio. He was the voice of the shadow. He played many, couple dozen roles and he wasn't identified. He was the go-to guy because of this great voice. And the other actors involved were also very experienced and excellent. So part of it was how they used their voices. Also, the sound effects. 
were great. And that convinced a lot of people. You know, radio is all sound. The writing, you had to write something that allowed people to see in their minds what was going on, but it couldn't have too much detail in it or be too complicated because you're just listening and can't get confused. You don't have the visual to help you. Music was used very effectively. Part of the whole thing of this was to make you think you were listening to a broadcast from a ballroom and you're hearing, you know, famous music being played, dance music, and then there's this news flash. And then they go back. After the short news flash, they go back to the music. So that was very effective. And then, of course, there's just this idea of using real places like Grover's Mill, like Princeton. The writers, Koch and Hausman, would have used even more real places, but the CBS censors wouldn't let them. For example, they wanted to say there was, you know, they were broadcasting from the top of the CBS broadcast building. They weren't allowed to say that. They wanted to talk about these Martians coming by and near St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City. They weren't allowed to say St. Patrick's Cathedral. There were things like that, but they said enough that people believed it. They believed these Martians are crossing over the river and coming into New York City. So I think all of that bringing it on, making it seem real, convince people. And the pacing was very well done too, because if you read this, you can tell, you know, anybody that's paying attention knows this is ridiculous. The Martians landing and, you know, New York City being annihilated in a few minutes is impossible. <laughs> but the way it was paced, it was very slow at the beginning with a weather report and with this music from a ballroom. And then it picked up. And it really started rolling. And I think it confused people in a way when they were listening to it. At the end, it closes with a sole survivor, essentially, waking up the next morning and commenting on his situation. The sun hadn't come up yet. I mean, it was not believable. (laughs) It was totally not believable. But, you know, by that time, that was not until, I think, 40 minutes after it began, you already have these people panicking. And, you know, one of the things in psychology is that people get their minds set on something and they have a hard time switching gears sometimes. And I think that happened. People panicked and they didn't stop and say, wait a minute, this is crazy. I'm wrong. How much of a role did Halloween Eve play in this whole equation? Did that make a difference as far as how many people were willing to believe it? You know, I've thought about that. And yes, it's a scary time of year and people are kind of primed for that. However, it's really scary for children, not adults. And they were adults that got all upset. So I, I almost think that no matter when this was broadcast, it probably would have had a similar reaction from the public. It's interesting looking through your book, which has a lot of great illustrations in addition to all of the fun information and facts about this broadcast. There was a letter, I think, from a 12 or 13-year-old boy writing in defense of the show later saying he didn't believe a word of it and he would like to hear it again. (laughs) Yes, I know. It makes you wonder who's more gullible, kids or adults? It does. 
You know, well, you were a teacher once, so you could probably answer that for us, <laughs> couldn't you? The parents or the students? You don't have to get into that. Here, I won't. Right? In case some of them accidentally <laughs> stumble onto this podcast. I asked you when we were talking about doing this conversation to think about some of the most impactful moments of the War of the Worlds broadcast, and you sent us a list. I thought it would be fun for our audience to walk through those point by point. We'll get your comments on those and then give people a listen so that they can get a flavor of what we're talking about here. I hope they'll all go listen to it on their own after this for a really scary Halloween Eve treat. But let's get into the list if that works for you. Does that work? Sure. Yes. So the first one you mentioned had to do with the commentator Carl Phillips reacting as the cylinder top opens. I assume this is the cylinder on one of the Martian landers. Yes. The first one that lands in Grover's Mill, you have Carl Phillips, who's a news commentator, go out to the site, and he's broadcasting and he's describing it. And then it begins to open, and he describes with horror what this monster looks like that emerges from this cylinder. Top is beginning to rotate like a screw and this thing must be hollow. He's moving! Keep those back! Keep those idiots back! Ladies. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the most terrifying thing I, I've ever witnessed. Wait a minute. And in order to do this scene, the actor listened to the live broadcast from the 1937 Hindenburg disaster in New Jersey. And the announcer was there to see the landing of the Hindenburg. And then suddenly it catches flame and crashes. And he keeps broadcasting. Now, I said live. It wasn't really live. He was taping it. It later played. But he kept his mic going and the tape going while he was observing this. And you can also go online and find this, the actual 1937 broadcast. And the horror that he had in his voice, the actor in the Orson Welles version of this imitated that. And it was fantastic. And I think it was so realistic that that scared many people. So I would say that was one big impactful moment in the broadcast. We get connected to the newsman on the scene, but he dies and the radio goes dead. That was another moment in your mind. Yes. So the monster shoots out flames and this commentator is describing how the flames are coming closer and closer and closer to him. And it's so dramatic in his voice. And then suddenly there's silence and it's dead air. And it lasted a while. I mean, six seconds, but on radio, you have dead air for that long, and it's dramatic. What that means, what anything means. Wait a minute, something's happening. Humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from that mirror, and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes him head on. Lord, they're turning into flames. Ah! The whole field's caught up by the woods. The barns, the, the gas tanks, tanks of the automobiles spreading everywhere. Coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right.
Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill. Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. However... And the listeners don't know what happened. What happened to this guy? Suddenly there's dead air. And that's where the studio says we've lost our connection. Then later, a few minutes later, they say we've just found out that his charred body has been found and identified. So that's scary as well. And again, it only worked because this actor was so good and the setup was so good that it seemed like, gee, something terrible did happen. I think it's interesting that you pointed out the censors would not allow the broadcast to claim it was atop the CBS building in New York City, but they would allow the broadcast to impersonate the president of the United States, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. That just really kind of an ironic twist to me. That was another moment on your list. Well, actually, they didn't allow it. Oh. No. A few years before, you know, FDR was doing these fireside chats and the White House asked the radio broadcasters across the board, please do not imitate the president because people get confused. But John Hausman later said this was the one naughty thing we did. (laughs) They announced, oh, we're going to switch to the secretary of the interior who's going to fill us in on what's happening. Originally, they wanted to say Secretary of War, but they were afraid the censors would go crazy with that, so they didn't say that. And then Wells said to the actor, you know what I want. And the actor did an FDR impersonation. I mean, it was perfect. And when you listen to the broadcast, you hear that. They never came out and said it, but it did sound like the president. Citizens of the nation... I shall not try to conceal the gravity of the situation that confronts the country, nor the concern of your government in protecting the lives and property of its people. However, I wish to impress upon you, private citizens and public officials, all of you, the urgent need of calm and resourceful action. Fortunately, this formidable enemy is still confined to a comparatively small area. And we may place our faith in the military forces to keep them there. In the meantime, placing our faith in God, we must continue the performance of our duties, each and every one of us, so that we may confront this destructive adversary with a nation united, courageous, and consecrated to the preservation of human supremacy on this earth. I thank you. Many people who heard it in their minds are saying, this is a real government official, this must be true. This must be really happening. And it was live. So it wasn't as if anybody could stop them once they were doing it. The broadcasters dropped like flies in this play. The (laughs) newsman gets charred by a Martian spaceship plotting across the New Jersey landscape. And then the other announcer who is on top of a building, no place is safe when the world is at war. We lose another one. And you you thought that was an important moment too. Yes, he's in New York City on top of the broadcasting building. That's all they could say. And he's telling about these tripods coming closer and closer and closer. And the 
deadly smoke that was killing people. And his voice just sounds so terrified. And he then finally says, this is the end now. And then plop, he drops dead and you hear the thud. And then right after that, you hear somebody who's supposed to be like on a shortwave saying, isn't there anyone on the air? Isn't there anyone out there? And then there's silence. This is the end now. Smoke comes out, black smoke drifting over the city. People in the streets see it now. They're running toward the East River, thousands of them, dropping in like rats. Now the smoke's spreading faster. It's reached Times Square. People are trying to run away from it, but it's no use. They, they're falling like flies. Now the smoke's crossing 6th Avenue. 5th Avenue. A uh, hundred yards away. It's, it's 50 feet. So just that whole combination made people think, oh, my goodness, everybody's dying. Everybody's dead in New York. Am I next? Not on your list was this sort of reflective essay thing that came at the end. To me, what you just described might have been a nice place to end the broadcast. They went on with this survivor who was speaking as though he were in a Shakespeare play. That didn't make your list. Is there a reason why? Remember, when they did this, when they wrote this, they weren't trying to scare everybody. That wasn't quite their goal. And they were just continuing the H.G. Wells story, which that's how that story is told. It's a survivor and from the survivor's viewpoint. And then the survivor is the one that can tell the audience what kills off all these Martians in the end. So that part was probably the last 20 minutes of the broadcast and it wasn't as exciting and there were no news flashes. Am I Richard Pearson? What day is it? Do days exist without calendars? Does time pass when there are no human hands left to wind the clocks? It was Orson Welles' voice mostly because he played that survivor But the damage in terms of frightening people had already been done. 
they listened for 40 minutes or so and they thought this was really happening and a lot of them had turned off the radios and hightailed it out of there. You know, they got <laughs> in their cars and they ran away or whatever, or they took action such as running out into the street and warning their neighbors. So that's why I didn't put that. It wasn't impactful. The things that really made the difference had happened before that moment. And people who waited till that point and didn't turn the radios off, you know, after that, they realized, well, this was just a story. And Orson Welles says that and says at the very end, basically, this was a Halloween joke. Well, they said it a lot during the broadcast. Why do you think people didn't hear it? Well, for one thing, and they did say it in the beginning, for one thing, there were people who tuned in late. So many of the people who reported that they believed it, at least for a while, were people who did not hear the introduction. So when they turned on their radio, they were in the middle of all this action. There was an announcement right before the commercial break and right after it. You are listening to a CBS presentation of Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in an original dramatization of The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Performance will continue after a brief intermission. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, starring Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air. But the commercial break had gotten pushed. It wasn't at the half-hour point, which people were used to. It was a little later. So that also made people think, oh, my goodness, this must really be happening because we didn't have a commercial. And they just they didn't hear that. What I said before, sometimes people just stop listening. They just decide something's real and they don't hear anymore and they just panic or they had turned off the radios and run. And then again, at the end, it was announced. So there were four different times when you listen to it, four different times that they said this is a play. Plenty of warning that it was not real. Anyway, I think many people, like the 11-year-old that wrote in, who had sense, knew this couldn't be true. (laughs) There was this one letter that was sent to Wells. It was by a, a little girl, and she said, if there was anything like this, scientists would know at least a year before the Martians got here. And another woman wrote and said, I didn't believe it because if this had happened, there'd be so much static on the radio, you couldn't even hear anything. So it's interesting why people came to not believe it. Not because the story itself was absurd and because the time and nothing fit. Not because they heard it was a story, but for these other rationalizations that they had. They were thinking about it. Doesn't make sense. They were. Not possible. That's right. (laughs) Based on what they knew in 1938. You know, there would be a lot more involved here. This just wouldn't happen in one hour. Yes. And the sun wouldn't come up on the radio either. That's my problem. (laughs) Where's the continuity director here? Yeah. (laughs) Of course, they weren't trying to convince people it was real, No, they weren't. They weren't. As I said, before the broadcast ended, CBS was getting phone calls from people who were panicked. They did not interrupt Orson Welles. John Hausman, who was in the control room, would not allow that to happen. So they just kept going on as planned. And it wasn't until they signed off at the very end that Wells and the actors understood what was going on outside the radio studio, that there were people who were really panicked. And the media in New York 
had picked up on this and they were already at CBS before it ended trying to find out what was going on and getting a story. What was the fallout from the broadcast after the smoke cleared? Well, initially, there were calls from Congress and from the public to the FCC to regulate radio better, that this should never have happened. There were people who were very irate about it in that respect. There were people yelling they were going to sue, but I don't think anything, from what I could see, nothing ever came of any of these lawsuits. This was the other interesting thing. The news media really hyped this. And their headlines the next day were, you know, millions of people panicked and all these stories. And when you read them, they're very similar. There was competition between the newspapers and the radio because the radio was starting to cut into the newspaper's business. Radio was broadcasting news. So people didn't necessarily have to read a newspaper. So the news media, the newspaper media was very happy to attack radio and criticize radio for sounding so realistic and misleading people. Ultimately, the fallout was good for Orson Welles and good for John Hausman and good for Howard Koch, many of the actors involved. They all went to Hollywood because this got so much attention all over the world, in fact. Of course, Hollywood would come calling. And it was not long after that that Orson Welles did Citizen Kane, for which he is probably most remembered. Did this play win any awards? Did anybody recognize it that way? No, no, nothing like that. But there were, that I came upon, there were 2,000 people that wrote either the FCC or CBS or Orson Welles. Those are the letters and telegrams that I can still find in libraries. And they're divided. There were a lot of people that said, this is ridiculous. Of course, this wasn't true. Other people were, I am so angry. Radio needs to be regulated. Orson Welles needs to be taken off the air forever. Very divided. In a time when the networks were censoring content, that's very interesting, I think. Yes. So the scripts were being censored. At least this one was being censored because they were afraid if you mention St. Patrick's Cathedral, maybe we'll get sued. So we don't want that. <laughs> oh, so these were lawyers then. They weren't yeah, censors. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> I was confused for a minute there. Now I, every PR person knows what that's about. I Absolutely. Bet, I bet. <laughs> Do you think we'll ever see anything like this ever again? Are we too sophisticated now? Is the media too distributed, too democratized for anything like this to ever really get to people? No. Maybe there, well, I don't think there probably would be one dramatic moment quite like this, but I think it's already happening, and there's small, constant examples of it happening. People are not as media literate as they should be. You know, an example, if you spend any time on Facebook or Twitter, you can see people reposting or retweeting stories that they have not stopped to analyze or verify. And that's not different, in my opinion, from people who were listening to this radio broadcast and ran outside and shouted to their neighbors, the Martians are coming, without turning the radio dial to another channel just to verify that that was happening. You know, this kind of stuff goes on. There's a lot of misinformation. 
And some of it's designed to make people get upset and panic. So I think there's something to learn from this. There were two letters that I like to quote to you that I thought were so relevant to today. One of them was from somebody in Hartford, Connecticut, and this was to Orson Welles right after the broadcast. And the person said, don't people think anymore, my God, what the propagandists of the next war can do. And there was a lot of that concern about because of Hitler and what was going on in Europe. People were thinking about that. People are so gullible in the United States. They're going to believe all sorts of propaganda. We need to worry about that. Then another person, a woman wrote, she was from Cleveland, Ohio. All this goes to illustrate the low mentality of the average listener. They do not see one-tenth of what they read. They must not listen to one-half of what they hear. Back then, people were critical of their fellow Americans in terms of being gullible and not being media savvy. I guess I should withdraw the question after those pieces of evidence were offered. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think part of the value of a history like this is just to look at what has happened in the past and think about, as an individual, how critical you are in what you absorb through the media. Last question. For PR people listening, what is the lesson from War of the Worlds? (laughs) The techniques that were used that were effective could be techniques they might want to use. And I know they're used in advertising anyway, but using famous people to help push your point, because there were scientists and the FDR impersonator and other experts in this broadcast. And there were letters that I read where people said, well, I heard that. So it has to be true. Some experts said this. So That can be an effective way to get people to go along with what you're trying to promote. The kernel of truth, always, if there's a kernel of truth to make something seem plausible, that can convince people to go all in. So I'm sure that people in PR and advertising study these techniques because it's all psychology. And they could see how these techniques can be effective. But then the negative part is they can see that these techniques can backfire. And you can get a lot of criticism because you've used them to fool people. And that is not always an effective thing. You don't want people to think you've been fooling them. Be careful, maybe, is another one. Yeah, be careful what you're doing and what you're saying. I think so. This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen. Out of character, to assure you that the War of the Worlds has no further significance than as the holiday offering it was intended to be. The Mercury Theater's own radio version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying boo. Starting now, we couldn't soap all your windows and steal all your garden gates by tomorrow night, so we did the best next thing. We annihilated the world before your very ears and utterly destroyed the CBS. You will be relieved, I hope, to learn that we didn't mean it and that both institutions are still open for business. So goodbye, everybody, and remember, please, for the next day or so, the terrible lesson you learned tonight. That grinning, glowing, globular invader of your living room is an inhabitant of the pumpkin patch, and if your doorbell rings and nobody's there, that was no Martian. It's Halloween. Listen to the entire broadcast and check out Gail Jarrow's book using links in the show notes. 
The War of the Worlds is an awesome story. Orson Welles and his team were almost too good at their craft. I think that this was the OG fake news, for sure. A hundred percent. Absolutely. You know, when I was pulling those bites from the actual original broadcast that Gail was talking about, just listening through parts of the broadcast, I was getting a few goosebumps. It was pretty spooky. I love all things Halloween, horror, ghost-related, so this sounds like the ultimate horror show. Do you now? Let's take a poll. So Sarah is super scary Halloween. What are you, Tim? Mm. Mm -hmm. No, no. Let's go with no. I am more of a Charlie Brown Halloween kind of person. What about you, Robert? Same thing. Only positive. Don't like the scary stuff. Oh, man. Are you going to, like, sit on your couch with a blanket, Sarah, and watch all the scary stuff like Psycho and Chucky and Freddy? All of it. That's my jam. (laughs) But no one else I know likes that kind of stuff. So normally it's I have to corral people into it. So I'm lucky if I get a few. What about your boyfriend? Oh, no, he's fun Halloween. Absolutely. Halloween Town, Hocus Pocus, which are all good, but I like the scary ones. (laughs) Yikes. No, thanks. Wells was a great storyteller. PR pros like to say they're great storytellers, too. But is it really that easy? We decided to ask someone who should know that. His name is Lindsey Graham. Hey, I know Lindsey Graham. Mm, Not that Lindsey Graham, not the politician. This Lindsey Graham is the best storyteller you could ever imagine. He has a bunch of great history podcasts on Apple Podcasts, along with other podcast apps. American History Tellers, American Elections Wicked Game, 1865, American Scandal, and then there's another one called Terms. Next week, in a bonus edition of the PR Nation podcast, we'll talk with Lindsay about storytelling. And when I asked him about this notion that so many people call themselves storytellers, here's what he had to say. Well, you know, it's not just in PR. I come from a marketing advertising background in general, and my wife is in in the same business. And there, too, the ubiquity of I'm a storyteller is predominant. I understand the impulse Because you are telling a story. You're telling a brand story. You're telling a client story. You're telling a story to other storytellers. Your job in marketing, advertising, PR is to take something that you believe in or are hired to believe in and make it a bigger, broader concept to a larger audience. The tools and methods are all different across those industries, but the goal is the same. Get this story out there. But storytelling is simultaneously one of the oldest arts we've ever accomplished and one of the trickiest. And it's tricky because it is not common language. It is not common communication. It is structured. It is thoughtful. And in some cases, it's driven by talent and charisma of the person who's telling it. In some cases, it's driven by the hard work of the person behind the words. I think storyteller as a quick descriptor of what you are, I get it. But maybe there's degrees or ranks within storyteller. Maybe you're not a storyteller general. Sounds like he was being nice. After talking with him for about an hour, I think Lindsey Graham, the storyteller, is super nice. He talked about the Titanic also, and we'll save that for next week as well. That's it for this Halloween edition of the PR Nation podcast, a podcast of PR people, by PR people, and for PR people, except me. I'm not a PR person. (laughs) I'm just a lowly audio editor. (laughs) But learning a lot. That's right. (laughs) 
This show is all about PR peeps, and that's why we need everyone listening to leave us a rating and a review. You can subscribe, too. That way you'll never miss an episode, even a bonus episode. There's a bonus episode coming next week. It's usually our week off, but we love you all so much, we're giving you an extra show. Lindsey Graham joins Robert to discuss the fine art of storytelling. He's along to help all of us tell better stories. The bonus storytelling episode of PR Nation is coming to you fresh and free on your mobile device Friday, November 6th. Until then, for Summer Johnson, Sarah Shelson, and editor Tim Madden, I'm Robert Johnson. This is PR Nation. In PR, we trust. Happy Happy Halloween. Halloween!